Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I am joined by my co-host, Aaron Brake. How are you doing today, Aaron? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. We're Advocates and Voices for the Unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now, last week, we began our series on talking about a book written by a physician named Dr. Willie Parker. His book is called Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. Now, last week, we were joined by Rich Prepard, and we talked a lot about his scientific statements. This week, we're going to be talking about the philosophical statements that he made. Now, last week, we did talk a little bit about his philosophy, because a lot of the statements that he claims are scientific ones are actually philosophical statements. And so we talked about them a bit last week. But we're going to go ahead and talk about them this week as well. So the main topics that we're going to be talking about related to Parker's philosophy are his statements on moral relativism, his statements on personhood, and his statements on religion versus science, which we're going to argue is a false dichotomy. Now, regarding his statements on moral relativism, on page 195 in his book, Parker writes that he will not perform abortions after the point of viability, but since he doesn't believe morality is absolute, he will refer out for them. He tells of a mother who is seeking an abortion for her daughter, so Parker referred them to clinics in Colorado and New Mexico. So Parker says that he does not believe that abortion should be done after the point of viability, but since he doesn't believe that morality is absolute, which he mentions on page 195, he says that he will refer out for them. So this is interesting because his relativism comes out in several places in the book. Another example is on page 13 where he states, I regard the meeting of sperm and egg as a biological event, no less miraculous, but morally and qualitatively different from a living, breathing human life, imbued with sacredness only when the mother or the parents deem it so, unquote. So according to Parker, then, the unborn human being is sacred, only when the mother or parents deem it so. 
So if the mother wants an abortion, the human being inside her is not sacred. But if the child is wanted, then their life is sacred. Uh, this, of course, is completely arbitrary and morally repugnant, considering that we are talking about the very same human being, regardless of whether or not they are wanted. So it seems that, according to Parker, our sacredness is based on our wantedness. I wonder if he applies this standard to other human beings, such as the homeless or persecuted minorities, but I have a feeling that Parker becomes a moral realist at that point. Another example can be found on page 143 where he states, What I can do is try, in the abortion clinics where I work, to create a safe haven where a woman's decision-making is not unduly influenced by other people's ideas about what's right or wrong, or the regrets they think she ought to have. Unquote. Again, I wonder if Parker would take this same position when it comes to other moral issues, such as slavery, misogyny, or racial discrimination. Of course not, because Parker denounces those things in absolutist terms throughout his book. He thinks those things are objectively wrong, and if he only thinks they are wrong relative to his own morality, then why should anyone pay attention to him? Like other inconsistent relativists, Parker is only a selective relativist. He is a relativist in the area he chooses to be, uh, namely religion and abortion. Right, and this is why C.S. Lewis once wrote that the, the most staunch relativist will complain if you cut in front of him in line or if you steal his apple. The thing is that nobody is a consistent relativist, especially in the case here of Parker, but anyone who claims that morality is relative, there are some things that when you press them enough, they will be moral absolutists or moral objectivists about. And, and so there are many issues with holding to moral relativism. A moral relativism just is not uh, an intellectually robust position and it's not defensible either. I mean, there are a lot, of, a lot of things wrong if you believe that morality is relative. For example, when slavery was legal here in the United States, it would have been moral to own slaves because our society said that it was moral to own slaves. But in another country in which slavery was illegal, it would have been wrong to own slaves. But that's absurd. It was clearly wrong to own slaves even in the United States when slavery was legal. And so if you take a morally relativistic position, then you would have to conclude that when we outlawed slavery, we did not become morally better as a society. We just changed our opinion about slavery, that we, we went from, from wanting to own slaves to not wanting to own slaves. But that's clearly an absurd position. And it also implies that there are no such thing as moral reformers. Someone like Martin Luther King Jr. was actually immoral because he was going against the, the common morality of his society. And someone like William Wilberforce, who fought to, to, in the slave trade in England, would have been immoral. But we, we understand that he was a moral reformer because he was fighting for the natural rights of the people who are being slaves. So moral relativism just is not a tenable position. And I know you have read the book Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair by Francis Beckwith and Greg Kokel, which goes into greater detail on, on relativism, but that's an excellent resource. Yeah, Beckwith and Kokel's book uh, on relativism is, is very accessible, too. So it's not, it's not written for a scholarly audience. It's written for a popular audience. And so, yeah, we would have highly recommend that book for more information on relativism and, and uh, objectivism, that kind of thing. So now regarding his statements on personhood, Parker doesn't believe that the fetus is equal to a baby or a child because it can't survive outside the uterus since it can't breathe, nor can it form anything like thoughts. 
Of course, Parker never actually justifies why these things are necessary to be equal to us older people. He just assumes it. We, we talked about recently on our show uh, some functionalist arguments, especially at the popular level. Parker's arguments here would be more along the lines of popular level functionalist arguments as opposed to the more sophisticated arguments of philosophers. But the, the problem with arguing that the fetus is not equal to a baby or a child because it can't breathe is that, number one, fetuses can breathe. They don't breathe like we do through their nose, but they do breathe through the umbilical cord. They take in oxygen. And so Scott Klusenorf in his book, The Case for Life, tells us that it, it's really just like switching from AC to DC power in that uh, you're not, it's, it's not the reality of breathing that changes at birth. It's just the method of breathing. And saying that it can't form anything like thoughts is really just, just an arbitrary criterion. Because number one, he doesn't justify why being able to form thoughts makes someone a person. But number two, is, as we mentioned on our show about functionalism, the reason that it can't form thoughts is just because it's too young to be able to form thoughts. But it will if allowed to continue developing. And again, Parker doesn't give any justifications for this. He just assumes that they're true. And Parker also says that despite what, quote, the antis, end quote, say, and antis is his not-so-nice term for pro-life people, a fetus can't feel pain up until 29 completed gestational weeks. He says that this is the scientific consensus, though he doesn't give any source to support his claim. Now, we haven't talked about fetal pain very much on this show, and I, I'm not really wanting to go into it too much here, because, again, my pro-life position is not based on whether or not the fetus can feel pain. It's based on what is the unborn, that the unborn is a human being, and so it deserves respect as a human person. But it's certainly not the scientific consensus that fetuses can't feel pain up until 29 completed gestational weeks. There may be scientists who would argue that, but there are scientists who would argue that it happens sooner. So wh whichever position is stronger, it's just wrong to say that it's the consensus. Now, Parker also opposes dehumanizing pregnant women, and rightly so, while in the next breath, dehumanizing pro-life people and the unborn. All throughout the book, he keeps asserting that pro-life people don't really care about the unborn. The reason we're pro-life is because we want to control women to control their bodies. And of course, that's a, that's a common uh, slander and libel against pro-life people. You would think someone like Parker would know better, but apparently he doesn't. In fact, Parker even has a chapter in his book called Black Genocide in the White Minority, in which he argues, and I'm not joking about this, that pro-life people oppose abortion because we want white women to have more babies to oppose black people being born. So we're not only misogynistic, we're racist too. In fact, uh, I do want to directly quote this from Parker's book. And so this is coming from pages 164 to 165 of his book. Now, he's talking here about pro-life organizations like Priests for Life and Life Dynamics, and he says, quote, Their goal, I'm preaching now, I can't help it, is not actually to curtail abortion services for poor women and women of color. It's to limit access to abortion for all women, including and especially white women. Because the thing all too many white anti-abortion activists really want, which they can't say out loud, is for white women to have more babies in order to push back against the browning of America. As we march toward the reality that, by 2050, no one racial or ethnic group will hold a proportional majority in this country, 
Racial suicide paranoia abounds, and for the white racist legislators in the red states, nothing is more threatening than a majority brown country. It strips them of their historic power. The prospect of being outnumbered is what enabled the Tea Party's mutiny of Congress in 2010 after the election of Barack Obama, America's first black president, allowing it to cripple the Republican establishment. Render the first majority party female presidential candidate powerless and enable the rise of the racist, nationalistic, and misogynistic Donald Trump. The white people who are still in charge believe that if their women don't start having lots of babies, they, the white patriarchs, are going to become obsolete. End quote. That is a real 100% bona fide quote from Parker's book, and it just defies all sort of rational, rational thinking or explanation. Can I ask you a question, Clinton? Oh, sure. How does this argument even make sense? Considering that it's actually minorities who are having a higher percentage of abortions, if pro-life people were really concerned with oppressing minorities and keeping them keeping their numbers down wouldn't we actually support abortion and wouldn't we want as many minorities as possible having abortions i don't even understand how parker's argument makes sense yeah you would think so i think that's a good point we we should logically want more abortions if we want to oppose the browning of america as he says so yeah that yeah i don't know <laughs> again you'd have to ask him because uh, these are his words but yeah so yeah i would agree with you yeah. that it doesn't really make sense and then on page 154, Parker makes what I consider to be a pretty puzzling statement. Considering that Parker's whole activism is based around civil rights, and he wants women to be able to succeed in life, and he wants to oppose dehumanizing people, on page 154, he makes the following statement, quote, Another truth, a fetus is not a person. It is not, therefore, entitled to the rights of a person. End quote. Now, the problem here is that people used to say the exact same thing about black people, that black people are not people and they don't have the rights of people. And so here, what Parker doesn't realize is that he's doing the same thing to the unborn that people used to do to black people or that Nazis used to do to Jews. He's dehumanizing them for the purpose of arguing that they can be killed. And so Parker's statements about wanting to support civil rights really rings hollow when he dehumanizes the unborn especially for, for really bad reasons, like they can't breathe yet or they can't form thoughts yet. He doesn't make any sort of robust argument for his position in his book, and so his dehumanizing fetuses really comes across as insincere and also a, a contradiction, an inconsistency to his claims to want to stand up for civil rights. Yeah, along those same lines, it is really hard to miss the irony throughout this entire book. I mean, just to give you a few more examples... On page 11, Parker states, quote, The people who passed the new laws, talking about the antis or pro-life advocates, concern themselves with fetuses. But these are humans I am caring for, talking about the women he cares for, real people, not merely biological organisms with the potential to become such. Now, the word fetus is just a word that comes from the Latin, which means little one. A fetus is a human being at a particular stage of development, the fetal stage. But Parker begs the question by assuming the only people that count are his patients seeking abortion, not the unborn human beings he's killing. Fetuses, have, as you have argued, Clinton, are not potential people, but people with great potential. As we discussed last week, 
Parker totally avoids the science of embryology, either out of ignorance or because he knows it does not support his case. So he is forced to use reductionistic terms such as biological organism uh, in referring to the unborn. Of course, the unborn is a biological organism. It's a human biological organism. It's a human being. But Parker, of course, doesn't want to admit that. Um, another example on page 37, Parker states, the words of the Holocaust survivor and peace activist Elie Wiesel reverberated within me. Our lives, he said, no longer belong to us alone. They belong to those who need us desperately, unquote. Parker can't seem to see that if there is any class or group of human beings that needs us desperately, it is the unborn who are the weakest and most vulnerable members of the human community. But rather than help protect these innocent and defenseless human beings, Parker instead believes it's morally permissible to kill them and actively does so as an abortion doctor. Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel and the millions who were killed during the Holocaust were dehumanized based on arbitrary qualities and characteristics. Parker can't seem to grasp the irony that he does the exact same thing with the unborn human beings in the womb. Again, on page 72, he states, People living in poverty are treated as second-class citizens in this country, deprived in a generalized way of the respect and compassion that should be accorded to every human being, unquote. Again, Parker misses the irony. He is complaining of those in poverty being treated as second-class citizens, saying they deserve respect and compassion as every human being does. Yet he himself does not want to extend that same respect and compassion to unborn human beings in the womb. In fact, Parker goes even farther since he doesn't merely treat the unborn as second-class citizens, but dehumanizes them to such an extent that it becomes morally permissible to kill them. Uh, on page 177, he states, quote, Just as groups of people like to subordinate other groups of people to themselves and so obliterate their humanity, whole regions have been dehumanized as well. Well, what do we say in response to this? This is exactly what happens with abortion. When we dehumanize the unborn and kill them, Parker just doesn't seem to get it. Um, finally, one last quote on page 185. Dr. Parker, in telling a tragic story of four young girls who were assassinated, he states, For me, it's meaningful and symbolic that the victims of the violence that day were female. They had their lives, their potential to grow into women taken away. The analogies are clear. Well, the analogies certainly are clear. Parker himself has committed countless acts of violence against females in the womb. He decries the assassination of these poor innocent victims who were assassinated. Yet if those same four young girls were in the womb, Parker would have supported killing them through abortion if their mother so desired. Again, it's just really hard to miss the irony in all of this throughout the book. Yeah, it really seems like Parker is missing too a sort of self-awareness in his arguments because he says for these women whose lives were tragically cut short that they had their lives, their potential to grow into women taken away. But that's what happens every single time an unborn girl is killed in the womb. Their lives, their potential to grow into women are taken away. And so it's difficult to see how he, how he doesn't understand this inconsistency. In fact, um, Chris Kayser, a pro-life philosopher, said in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, you know, we, we've dehumanized a lot of people down through history, whether it be the Jews from Nazi Germany, the black people here in the United States, 
women, homosexuals, pick your group. Many of them have been dehumanized throughout history. What is it about the unborn? What is it about our situation now that makes us think that even though we've gotten it wrong all of these other times, that we've actually gotten it right now? Yeah, so throughout history, as you said, Clinton, whenever we deem a group or a class of human beings to not count as one of us, it never ends well for them. And that's, again, as you said, that's that's seen in every case in history, whether we're talking about the Jews during the Holocaust or African-Americans during slavery. It never ends well for that group or class of human beings that we uh, dehumanize and declare to be non-persons, and it's no different with abortion. So our third problem that we want to talk about in Parker's book is this false dichotomy that he creates throughout the book, pitting religion against science. Now, throughout the book, Parker insinuates that religion and science are somehow at odds, that pro-life advocates or the antis, as he refers to them, base their beliefs solely in religion and opinion, while pro-abortion choice advocates have truth and science on their side. On page 10, for example, he states that anti-abortion laws are subverting scientific knowledge in the name of religious truth. On page 25, in telling his own story, Parker states that, uh, quote, even in college, my love for science began to chip away at some of the absolutist claims of my faith, unquote. This makes one wonder what it is exactly that Parker held in terms of faith. Perhaps it is the case that it was Parker's bad theology that led him to believe science and faith are at odds, then that he had to choose one or the other. And of course, with regard to abortion, Parker never gives any scientific evidence from embryology to show that a new human being doesn't come into existence at conception. So I really don't understand how he thinks that religious beliefs concerning life begins at conception, that that is somehow at odds with the science. Parker, even though he claims to be a Christian, and we're going to talk about his biblical statements next week, uh, even though he claims to be a, a Christian, he falls into the same trap that, that many atheists fall into in assuming that religion and science must be fundamentally at odds. But the reality is very different. It's always been Christians, and to some extent Muslims have as well, but it's always been Christians who have been at the forefront of scientific advancement. In fact, most of the most brilliant scientific thinkers down throughout history have been theists, such as uh, Isaac Newton or Louis Pasteur or uh, Blaise Pascal. You know, the list goes on, and they've all been Christians, and they haven't seen science as opposing, fundamentally opposing their faith. They've actually seen science as an outworking of their faith. They believe in God, and they see science as a tool to help them understand the universe that God has created. In fact, it's only been very recently, around the time of Darwin, I think, that there's been this disconnect between science and philosophy and and religion. But the thing is that science traditionally has been understood as a species of the genus philosophy. In fact, science used to be called natural philosophy. And so this whole idea that science is fundamentally opposed to religion is just false. Uh, Alvin Plantinga actually wrote a, a terrific book called Where the Debate Really Lies, in which he shows, in which he shows quite well that that religion, contra the popular belief, that religion is not actually opposed by science, but in fact religion actually helps facilitate scientific understanding, and that strict naturalism 
actually gives you more problems regarding science than religion does. That, that debate and discussion really is kind of beyond the scope of this podcast, uh, uh, but I would highly recommend that book if you're interested in more information on, this, on, the, on the topic of science versus religion. Now, along that same line, one of the most glaring contradictions that I found in Parker's book has to do with this whole idea of pitting religion against science. Uh, on page 147, Parker states this. He says, The hypocrisy of the political right on capital punishment and abortion is more evidence, in my opinion, that we cannot adjudicate these questions of life in the realm of opinion and religious belief. Science is the only judge before which each and every party stands entirely equal. Unquote. In other words, questions of life and when life begins should be based, according to Parker, on science, not religion. But again, of course, Parker makes no case for his view from embry embryology, as we've talked about before. He merely asserts it. But listen now to what he says at the end of his book on pages 210 to 211. He states this, And so conception, life, death, birth, abortion, they're all processes playing out in the reality of that other. I don't have this truncated view that life begins exactly here or ends exactly there. Static processes don't resonate with my understanding of God. Unquote. Wow, D did you catch that? So throughout his book, Parker claims he has science and truth on his side, that the antis are basing their beliefs solely in religious opinion and belief. And even on page 147, he states that questions of life must be based on science, not religion. Yet at the end of his book, when it comes down to it, he punts to religion. He does the exact thing he claims pro-life advocates are doing. When it comes to life, he says they are playing out in, rea in the reality of the other. And that these processes don't resonate with his understanding of God. Wow. Okay, so we've talked now about Parker's philosophical statements that he makes in his book. We talked about his moral relativism, we talked about his personhood, and we talked about the fact that he pits religion against science. So we'd like to thank you again for listening. And Aaron, I'd like to thank you again for joining me to talk about uh, Parker's book and critique it a bit. So if you appreciate the content of this, we would ask that you share it around, um, especially on social media, Facebook, Twitter, what have you, and rate and review it on our Facebook page as well as uh, on iTunes. Now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to, to the podcast specifically, uh, you can indicate that in the notes section as well. And donations are also tax deductible. Now, next week, uh, Aaron's going to be joining me again, and we're going to be finishing our three-part series on responding to Willie Parker's book. And we're going to be responding to 
his statements about the Bible. It's going to primarily be a religious episode because Parker himself claims to be a Christian and makes a lot of statements that we can analyze and critique in his book. So that may not be for you if you don't find yourself to be religious, but it might still be something worth listening to, even even if you're not, because you'll get a, a better idea of how to properly interpret scripture and how to and how uh, Willie Parker in his book makes a lot of false statements uh, regarding Christianity and regarding Jesus and God Himself, and so you'll get you'll get a better understanding of of what Orthodox Christians of how Orthodox Christians view the Bible. So, uh, on behalf of Aaron. I would like to thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time. could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.